once again to Romans, now Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. And as we do so, we're in this section of chapter 9 through 11 that focuses on the international defense of the gospel or his defense that the gospel needs to go throughout the earth to all men and women, boys and girls, both Jews and Gentiles. We have seen in our most recent study some of the abuse that the Apostle Paul suffered as a believer, 195 lashes just from the Jews, scars on top of scars. Dr. Boyce comments the remarkable thing was Paul's overwhelming love for those who were his enemies. Nowhere is there ever found or is there ever imputed to him the shadow of personal offense, matching retaliation, or lingering bitterness against the Jews for this abuse. Not once, nowhere. On the contrary, Paul's spirit was the spirit of his master who wept over the city of Jerusalem even though he knew he was about to be crucified by the nation's hostile leaders. As we come to our paragraph this morning, Dr. Leon Morris writes, as Paul moves from his expression of sorrow to the development of his argument, Paul begins with a powerful statement about the sovereignty of God. His God is no petty deity, unable to affect his purpose in the universe he has created, but a mighty God who is doing what he has planned. There is a strong emphasis on mercy, for Paul is not talking about a mighty and arbitrary tyrant, but about a God who loves all that he has made and specifically the people that he has chosen. In this section of his argument, he first makes the point that God has always worked on the principle of election, of choosing out people through whom he would work his purpose. Leon Morris gives the title to this paragraph, God Works by Election. And let me show you how this works. We're all aware that when Noah and his three sons came out of the ark, there were only those eight humans alive on the earth. There is Noah, his three sons. It is through the one son that God chose to work, which means that a vast section of or vast portion of the population was left alone apart from any definitive word from God. And there we have Shem, partway down Eber, from whom we get the term Hebrew, Hebrews, and then on down in the yellow highlighted line is Abram. And if we think of God working through the one line and his passing over of many others, it is a very striking contrast that displays the absolute sovereignty of God. This is sovereign choice. When we come to the line of Abraham himself, That former chart all came all the way down, and Abram was at the bottom of that chart. Now he's at the top of this chart. And we need to remind ourselves that Abraham had his first son, Ishmael, through Hagar, Sarah's servant girl. Then the second, a long-promised son, was through Sarah, and this was Isaac. And then after Sarah died, we may have forgotten this, but Abraham remarried. He married Keturah, and there are these six sons 
of Abraham down here at the bottom that I'm going to guess 75% of us don't really know the names even of those sons of Abraham. And the point of our passage is to help us to see that God works through a line. God works through Abraham and Isaac, then to Jacob, then to Judah, and eventually to the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it is all the more graphic when you consider the marking out of Ishmael's line. I am not saying that Ishmael was not converted. I am not saying that Ishmael is not in heaven. But I am saying that when it comes to the matter of the gospel promises, the covenants, the worship in the temple, the glory, all those great blessings of God drawing near to his people, it was left for a particular line, and that was based on God's decision. So let's come now to our passage before us uh, as we look, first of all, at Roman numeral one as we work through this passage. And if I stretch your mind a little bit this morning, I don't really know that I should apologize for that. Please know that someone like Dr. Boyce talks about Romans 9 through 11 And he says, this may be the most difficult portion of Scripture to understand in all the Word of God. He goes on to say, I believe it's harder to understand than even the book of Revelation. Well, you may debate with him on what is the most difficult, but when you hear someone of that caliber saying that, then we know we can't daydream and understand the word aright. Notice with me, Roman number one, earthly Israel is not true spiritual Israel. Is this not the message of Romans 9 and verse 6? First of all, A, Paul's awareness of an erroneous expectation of Israel's salvation Ancient Jews would have assumed that all of Israel is going to be saved. In fact, one writer, a Jewish writer, wrote, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. So Paul begins in his argument here in verse 6 by demolishing the position that the whole Jewish nation would be saved. Paul says, in effect, look at the way that God has acted in the past in working out his fulfillment of his promise to save a people. And you will see that from the very beginning, there have been descendants of Abraham who were not among the elect. King Saul, we have no reason to believe, will be in heaven. Judas Iscariot, we have explicit reason to believe, will not be in heaven. Not every Jew will be in heaven. And remember that Paul is saying that from a posture of love to his fellow Jews. Leon Morris writes, It was an error to assume, as many of the Jews of his day did, that descent from Abraham gave them total security and a favored position before God. Secondly, B, Paul's disappointment at Israel's rejection of her God. This is Romans 9, 1 through 5. We looked at it last week. He has this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart because the Jews are rejecting their God. They have all of these privileges, and their highest privilege is that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come out of that Jewish line 
and largely they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, C, Paul's definition of true spiritual Israel. Paul's definition of true spiritual Israel. From verse 6, latter half, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This is not new in Romans 9. Paul has already told us in Romans 2 and verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a true Jew, I'm adding true, but a true Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And then just very quickly, what I highlighted in our reading of the Scripture, Paul speaks of two Israels here. Latter part of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel that's physical Israel, belong to Israel. And so we have to understand he's using Israel of the nation physically and Israel as a nation spiritually, those who are going to heaven. Then as well, Paul speaks of two kinds of offspring. There in verse 7, he will speak of children of Israel, that's this hand, that's the green, that's the true spiritual children of Abraham, and then he speaks of his offspring. And then he says that through Isaac, your offspring will be named. There are two kinds of children, children of the flesh, children of Abraham, children of God, children of the promise, and these are as well the spiritual offspring. So three different words that speak of the same two different groups, a physical Israel and a true spiritual heavenly Israel. And Paul is arguing that these great promises of God were not giving given generically to all of the physical descendants of Abraham. Israel's used with two meanings. Children is used with two meanings. Offspring is used of two meanings. So your and my job when we come to Romans chapter 9 and we're reading through it, we are to ask ourselves and to seek to determine, is this physical Israel or is this spiritual Israel? Are these the children of God? Whoops. Are these the children of the flesh or are these the children of God? Are these the genetic offspring of Abraham or are these the true offspring of Abraham? Notice how this theme continues on in Romans 9. Romans 9 and verse 27. We read it before. Let me highlight it now. Though the number of the sons of Israel, there's the physical descendants, be as the sand of the sea. You got lots and lots of them. Only a remnant of them will be saved. Then verse 29. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, a spiritual offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. We would have been in the same sort of shape as these great pagan cities in the day of judgment. Last passage, Romans 11, verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So this, this definition that we'll come to is seen in a, in a passage 
um, like Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. You may like to turn there. I have it written here uh, in my notes. So uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. But far be it from me to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Now verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. To a congregation or a group of congregations in Galatia, made up of Jews and Gentiles, Paul is viewing that those regenerate members of those various churches as the Israel of God. Now, Fourthly, let's come to D, our new covenant lesson, our new covenant lesson on the nature of true spiritual Israel. You remember how Jeremiah gives that prophecy of the day that is coming when there will be a new covenant. And there are three marks of the new covenant. The first is a definitive forgiveness of sins. It is, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31 and verse 34. The second definitive mark that I'll highlight comes from Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Everyone who is a member of God's people will have God writing his law, not on a tablet of stone, but on a table of a human heart. And what that means is that God gives within our heart a desire and some measure of ability to do what is pleasing to our God in heaven. But then the third mark of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31 and now verse 34, is that all of God's covenant community will know God. It is a regenerate church membership. It is in the language of verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. In Old Testament Israel, you were born physically into the nation. And as long as you did not blaspheme God, you were a legitimate member of the covenant community and you had access to the temple, to the sacrifices, and everything that the nation had to offer. But you may not have been a true believer. And so, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, one man who is a believer would need to speak to his friend and to his brother and evangelize them saying, you need to know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. But there is coming a time of the new covenant church community begun by the Lord Jesus Christ where every member of every church is to be regenerate. They already know the Lord. And so you don't have to evangelize within the church community. You need to evangelize on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening because it's not only church members who are there. And there are times when the gospel needs to come to church members because guess what? There is no perfect church here on earth. We only realize that regenerate church membership once we get to heaven, but it is still our goal. This is why I believe 
in a regenerate church membership. This is why we say as a group, when you come into the membership, we want to hear your testimony. We want to hear of how God has worked in your life, causing you to see your sin, causing you to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and how you have rejected your sin and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't get it perfect, but that is our goal. So if you're sitting here this morning, you need to ask yourself the question, do I know God? Have I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not good enough that dad and mom believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because God has no grandchildren. You're either a child of God or you are not a child of God and you do that individually by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Roman number one, earthly Israel is not true Israel. Roman numeral two, God's sovereign selection of Abraham and not Haran and Nahor. Who in the world are Haran and Nahor? Well, these are Abraham's brothers. And so I'm mentioning them. They're not mentioned in the text. Abraham is mentioned in the text. And we're just stepping back from the text, seeing something of the larger purpose of God, and I'm just going to give these headings in a slight bit of detail. First of all, A, God chose Shem over Ham and Japheth. Shem's line will lead to Eber and eventually down to Abraham. But as that picture on the screen with the X's, however politically incorrect that is of me to do that, it shows that God has made a choice. And even if you don't want to call it election, if you don't want to call it God's selection, and even though you may not want to call it God's choice, you've got to admit that God gave his word, his revealed word, to a special line and group of people where God was specifically talking to them when he was silent to vast swaths of humanity. God chose Ham, Shem over Ham and Japheth. Secondly, B, God chose Abraham from a family of idolaters. Joshua 24 and verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes to Shechem, some of the elders, the judges and the officers of the people. They presented themselves before God. Now verse 2, and Joshua said to all the people, remember Joshua has been leading them into the land. There's been the conquering that they have begun at the land. Joshua 24, we're now at the end of his book. And Joshua says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and on it goes. And I believe it is good for us as we think of Abraham as that great leader of the monotheistic Jewish nation. Where did God get him? God had to go get Abraham from a pagan altar. They served other gods. And even though this is not particularly highlighted in the passage, it is highlighted later in the passage that God's sovereign election is not based on the good that he finds in them. I am suggesting to you the same truth is true of Abraham. 
The one who worshipped idols that God had to go get him. It's by his grace that God saves and brings any and all into union with Jesus Christ. And do you see the encouragement that the example of Abraham is for our evangelism in a day like today? God is able to reach into the hearts of those that are bowing before other gods. Whether they're doing that literally, like he did, or whether they are bowing to a god of mammon, a god of wealth, a god of their own importance, and God can turn those hearts so easily in the direction of himself. Thirdly, see, God's election of Abraham is to the praise and of the glory of his grace. Paul's already talked to us about Abraham as an example of justification by faith, Romans chapter 4. And there in Romans 4 and verse 4, we read these words, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. God has to pay for salvation, those who are working for their salvation. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. This is one of the most blessed verses in all of the Bible. That the God who has dealings with us is the God who justifies the ungodly. And it doesn't matter if your name is whatever your name is or your name is Abraham and part of your sin, part of your ungodliness is your worshiping idols. God declares righteous those who are ungodly. And Paul taking this back, tracing out the blessing of Ephesians 1 and verse 3 of our being chosen by him before the foundation of the world, our being predestined to adoption as sons. And Paul takes it back as far as you and I as humans can legitimately go. And he traces that salvation back to the praise of the glory of his grace. And for those of you who are believers, why are you a believer? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Roman numeral one, not all Israel is Israel. Roman numeral two, God's sovereign selection of Abraham. Roman numeral three, God's sovereign selection of Isaac and not Ishmael. First of all, A, Ishmael is born out of the believing family's carnal policy. Do you remember what Genesis 15 is about? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Really a good chapter, isn't it? And then there's God coming between the pieces of the meat and pledging his commitment in the covenant. Do you know what Genesis 16 is about? Genesis 16 is a real dip. Genesis 16 is about the believing family's carnal policy, where they are believers in God, but Sarah whispers to her husband, the way that we're going to get a son is if you take up a relationship with Hagar, my maid, and then we will count that boy to be our son. We're going to help God out. They're going to help God out with their carnal policy. And God says, no, I've promised that there will be a son and it will come to Abraham and to Sarah. 
Once again, I'm not saying that Ishmael is not a believer. I'm saying he's not in the line of the Jews. He is not in the line of the covenant. He does not have all of those blessings of Romans 4 and verse 5 listed out. Secondly, B, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua are not sons of promise. You and I don't know these names. These are the names of Abraham's sons, but sons by Keturah. Sarah died 127, so Abraham was 137. He died when he was 175 years old. So for 38 years after Sarah died, he continued to live. And sometime after Sarah's death, Abraham took Keturah as his wife, Genesis 25.1, and they had six sons together. But the point is, none of them are in the line of the covenant. They have Abrahamic DNA, but they are not in the line to have all of the blessings as Israelites. Thirdly, see, Isaac is the child of promise, and Isaac is of the covenant line. Now, verse 7, quoting from the Old Testament, through Isaac, your offspring will be named. Abraham was 86 when his first son, Ishmael, is born. Abraham is 100, 14 years later. When Isaac is born, Sarah's 90, Abraham is 100. Sarah's well past her ability to have children. But here, Romans 9 quotes from Genesis 21 and verse 12, For through Isaac your offspring will be named. Ishmael and Hagar, I believe, are being sent away in Genesis 21. There's a measure of carnality even on on Sarah's part, and yet you understand her, her thinking. And God speaks to Abraham and says, whatever Sarah tells you to do, her motives may, and I'm adding, her motives may not be the best, but this is my will being worked out because through Isaac, there is the fulfillment of the covenant promise. Romans 9 and verse 9 quotes Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, the angel of the Lord and two angels appearing as men come. They have a meal with Abraham and Sarah. And at that time, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So Sarah was inside the tent. She didn't think she could be heard, and she laughed. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Later, Sarah says, she denied it. I did not laugh. But the angel, yes, you did laugh. And what's my point? God's grace is at work. Sarah is not conceiving a child because she is this perfect individual. God is working with humanity that is fallen and is broken and is needy. And we're particularly in need of a savior. But to Isaac comes the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And God is sovereignly at work to accomplish his purposes in history and in the salvation of individuals. Roman, Roman number four God's sovereign selection of Jacob and not Esau. Notice, first of all, A, the similarity. The similarity between Esau and Jacob before God's sovereign choice. Esau and Jacob have the exact same father and mother. You see how this is a more powerful argument than the argument about Ishmael and Isaac? 
You say, well, yeah, that, that, the, the handmaiden, that's, you know, that's not such a good thing. So Esau and Jacob have the exact same father and mother. Esau and Jacob are in the womb at the exact same time. They are twins. They are about as equal as you can be. If anything, Esau has the priority because Esau is older. He is the firstborn. And Esau and Jacob have the exact same lack of record. It is before they are born. It is before they have done either good or bad. God makes his choice. Secondly, B, the timing of God's sovereign choice. Of course, God's choice is made before the foundation of the world, but here it is stated as when they are not yet born. And God can, he does know everything, so God could look down through the tunnel of time and he could see either the good or the bad, that is, and then he makes his choice based on that. What's the problem with that view? Well, right here in Romans chapter 9, we are told that they had done neither good or bad. That's not the basis of God making his decision. The Spirit of God rules that out. Thirdly, see the motivation of God's sovereign choice. In order that God's purpose of election might stand, might continue, might remain, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Positively, the purpose of election, the election of purpose, you can put it either way. Ephesians 1, interestingly, interestingly, verse 4, just as he chose us in him, verse 6, according to the purpose of his will. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. God has a purpose. In eternity past, God is looking at a sinful pile of clay, and God determines to show grace. He purposes that I will save them, not on the basis of their works, but on my mercy. Negatively, see it there in verse 11. Not because of works. And it's a good thing. Do you know anything about Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau? And you say, well, when you ask the question, I'm starting to have some things come back up. You know what? Isaac was not the best because he was showing a personal favoritism to one of his boys. And as a shepherd, for some reason, he liked the one who didn't like to be a shepherd and the one who liked to go hunt and the one who had this game that he had a taste. That's the one he liked. Not so good. You look at mom. Mom has a favoritism for a kid. Good thing is, it's a different kid. So it's not both parents loving on the same one. But she's loving the second born, Jacob. But Rebecca is not so good because she's the one who comes up with the plan and says, you need to get some goat skin and put it on your arm and you need to go get your brother's clothes out of his closet and you need to dress up and pretend like you are Esau and go in and deceive and lie to your father. Um, I'm, I'm really glad that salvation is not based on works. And then Jacob is the one, it's been a long time since I preached on, but I remember, I think I remember that Jacob lied to his dad seven times saying, oh yeah, dad, I'm Esau. Give me the blessing. 
Isaac doesn't deserve it. Rebecca doesn't deserve it. And Jacob doesn't deserve it. And Esau is the worst of the whole bunch. Not by works. In election, God comes to the sinful mass of clay and he says, I'm going to use this, this, for this one and this one according to my gracious choice. Negatively, not based on works. Positively again, based on the God who calls. There in verse 11, not because of our works, but because of his own works. That's Timothy. But here Romans 9, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God stands before the sinful mass of clay and he calls and his call is a powerful summons and it brings us into his presence so that we are brought into the fellowship of his son. Fourthly, D, the plainness of God's sovereign choice. First of all, verse 11, election means sovereign choice. You can look in a Greek dictionary and say, what what is this word that lies behind our word of choice? What is it? Well, you can either say it means special choice, selection, choice, or election. Acts 15.22, there's a problem between the Jerusalem church and the church of Antioch. The leaders of the church here in Jerusalem say, we need to choose men to go along with Paul. Who should we choose? And they choose a guy by the name of Judas, and they choose another Judas who is known as, what is it, Barabbas. Um, And they choose, uh, I'm looking at the text, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas the leading men. They made a choice. And when God's looking at his sinful mass of clay, God makes a choice. I'm going to save Isaac. I'm going to save Jacob. I'm going to leave Esau in the pile. There is plainness when it comes to God's sovereign choice. Listen to Ephesians 1 verse 4. Even as he, the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Because God chose us as the first fruits to be saved. Jesus speaks to his apostles. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit. Oh, you see there, God didn't choose them for salvation. God just chose which ones were going to bear fruit. Well, really, it's both. Three verses later in verse 19, but I chose you out of the world. I chose you out of the world and I chose that you're going to have this ministry and this is how I'm going to bless. God's election brings real life consequences. The older will serve the younger. And God's election speaks of the most important issue in all of life where God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You may not like that message. You may find a thousand other verses in the Bible than you, that you like better than this one. My point is not whether or not you like it. My point is whether or not it is clear. The plainness of God's sovereign selection. Fifthly, God's sovereign selection applied to us. First of all, God's election is concerned with nations and individuals. Some come to Romans 9 and they try to evade the forcefulness of it by saying, well, Paul's really just talking about nations. He's talking about the nation of Israel, and he's talking about the Edomites that came from Esau. 
Well, it is true. Nations are being talked about. But God deliberately chose Abraham and not Nahor and not Haran. Those are individuals. And God's choice has a tremendous impact on their lives individually. God deliberately chose Isaac over Ishmael, Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua, all the sons of Abraham. Isaac is an individual. God's choice of him over the sons of Keturah, it had huge impact for them as individuals and for him as an individual. God chose Jacob over Esau. One of them will be in heaven and one of them will not. It has profound impact on them as individuals. Yes, nations are in view. But so are individuals. What is a nation? A nation is a group of individuals. And if you think God only chooses nations, listen to 2 Thessalonians 2.13, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved. We need to see God in his omnipotence. You need to understand that you do not have the keys of faith and repentance in your pocket. And I'm just going to, I'll get saved when I want to get saved. And five minutes before I die, I'm going to reach into my pocket and pull out the key of faith and repentance. And then I'll get saved and God will be bound to save me at that time. You know what's wrong with that view? You don't carry the keys. You will not come to Jesus Christ five minutes before you die unless God, by his powerful grace, is working on you, bringing conviction of sin and bringing an opportunity for you to hear or to reflect on the gospel of mercy. Deal with God now. He was only dealing with nations. God passed over Pharaoh for salvation. It's not a matter for us to think that we are big and powerful and we control our destiny. It is for us to bow before a great God. Secondly, be Election makes an extreme difference in your life. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I hated. I'll put my name in there. Mitch, God loved. Or Mitch, God hated. Put your name in there. Which part of the sentence does your name belong It really brings home to us the extreme difference based on whether or not God has set his love on us. Some try to say that he hate means to love less. But if you read that Malachi 1 verses 1 through 5 passage where God first says it, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. You see how that, that's not just a lack of favor. That's an expression of something of an act of opposition on the part of God. Where does your name belong? 
Mitch I loved, Mitch I hated. Get a sense of how serious it is to have God against you and settle those accounts with God this morning. How? You take your sins to the foot of the cross and leave it there, and you receive by faith the fullness of Jesus Christ's righteousness. Finally and more quickly, see, God's election leads to God's effectual calling. Latter part of verse 9, not because of works, but because of him who calls. You don't need good works to get you into heaven. You need God to call you. And if God calls you to salvation, you're you're going to need to respond in faith. Our warrant for coming, we hear of election. Yes, it's true. But the reason why you and I come to Jesus Christ, it's not because we stand in front of the mirror and we twist our earlobe around and, oh, looky there, there's a little E tattooed on the back of my earlobe. That's why I know I can believe in Jesus. Have you ever heard that from the Bible? Well, it's a good thing. It's not there. But what is in the Bible? God commands all men everywhere to repent. What is in the Bible? Why, what is our warrant to come to Jesus Christ? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You don't come because you find out that God has elected you somehow. You can't climb up into heaven. You don't need to. Because God tells you to come And God invites you to come and urges you to believe in the Lord Jesus and promises you that if you will come, he will not cast you out. God sovereignly works in history through election. Let's pray. Father, please take your word and own it. Sober each one of us this morning with the consideration of whether or not right now your love is set on us or your anger is set on us. And grant in mercy, by the work of your Holy Spirit, call some, draw them to yourself, and grant faith and repentance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.